to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. I um have I, I had this plan. I just was recently at a conference, and it's a conference of about two hundred to three hundred of colleagues of studies from all over the country and world sometimes, and of of getting to connect with uh, our guest Joy. And we didn't at all get to connect. And I was even going to like try to do this. Like I didn't even told Joy this, but I was going to try to like you know say, hey, do you want to run to this room real quick? I've got a mic and we can just do this podcast real quick. But things at any conference got crazy. But anyways, all that to say, I have the pleasure of having Joy Qualls with me uh, for this podcast. Joy is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Biola. And uh, she is also, I believe, the chair, right? Or am I wrong on that? I think I'm... Oh. Oh. Sorry. Even more middle management than before. I bet you're more than happy with the added admin role, right? It's 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 a it's a great pleasure. <laughs> um, but Joy, thanks so much for for being here. Before we introduce the topic, I just want to ask if you would introduce yourself, let our listeners know a little bit more about you, and uh, maybe even where you're coming from. As we are going to get into the topic today, sure, sure, yeah. So my name is Joy Qualls. I am. Uh, a professor here at Biola University in La Mirada, California. If you're not familiar uh, with Biola, we we were the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. That's what mm-hmm. Biola stands for. Um, and uh, one of the original uh, fundamentalist institutions um, in the country, we were formed out of the modernist uh, um, fundamentalist split mm-hmm. uh, in the in the mainline Presbyterian uh, uh church at the turn of the last century. Um, we actually have the fundamentals in our library, the original document. Wow. Okay. So, um, so yeah, we're it. We're kind of the, the center of um, American fundamentalism here at Biola. Um, I've been here seven years. I live here in Southern California, um, but I'm uh, a girl of the Midwest. I was, I was born in Springfield, Missouri, uh, and raised in North Dakota, married a Virginian, and we have a uh, two great, amazing kids. Um, but we've been here for seven years and, uh, I won't say we love it here in Southern California, but, but we love what we do. (laughs) Oh, really? You would, uh, you would say you'd rather be back Midwest? Uh, this time of the year, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, we miss seasons. So I I would go back to Virginia probably even more than I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. We miss seasons, fall, especially. About to say, yeah, it was, it was, Nice and 80 degrees there. And I came home this morning. It was 18 degrees. So well, and I can say that I don't necessarily. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pouring down rain today. So. And in, in Southern California. It is. Yeah. We're wow. having a rainy day today. Who would have known? Who knew? <laughs> um, today, we want to talk about uh, a, partially about a paper you presented, but really kind of a study of yours as a whole. Um but this idea that the way that we communicate about ideas and things really does matter, especially as it comes to our denominational groups, our Christian tradition, 
And at first, I think for some people that might be like, well, okay, yeah, probably how we communicate matters, but there's more to it than just saying how we communicate uh, matters. And so, Joy, I want to just start by kind of saying, why were you so kind of interested in thinking about the way in which we communicate? Like, where did this come from in saying, you know what, maybe it's something that some people might not really kind of, they might just glance at and go, oh, well, of course. But why is it that you were like, no, no, we really need to talk about it again. Like you, you've missed it. If you just think it's like, well, duh, then we have to talk about it again. So I am a rhetorician by training. So I analyze the way we talk about things. Um, right. My my specialty uh, in my research is in religious and political communication and the intersections between the two. I, I have found myself a gender scholar um, to a certain extent because I wrote my dissertation and my original manuscript on the way we talk about women in the church. So mm. I tend to get called on for that. Um, but over time with the book and, and in my work, I, I have been trying to develop a model of uh, so, so that we can analyze religious rhetoric and understand the implications of those things. So, yeah. so the way I describe it to students is that we both use language to craft and construct and form our realities, but we are also used by language. Hmm. And that meaning is not in our words themselves. The definitions of words meaning is in us as people. So, so right. the ways in which we... Um, we uh, take in messages and the ways in which we craft our messages forms um, of the vast majority of the way you and I understand the world around us. And, right. and so for me specifically, the religious world, my world, um, as, a, as a Pentecostal evangelical white middle class woman, how do I understand the world that I operate in? And, and what are the what are the constraints that are placed on me based on the way um, messages are constructed that yeah. I receive? Yeah. Yeah. So unpack a little bit maybe how that that's different, right? I mean, in my kind of biblical studies training, the, the amount that I had, but then even in, in more in the theological studies, I mean, oftentimes the phrase would be like context is everything, right? Like, right. like the meaning of the word is based on the context of the way it was used and the way that you kind of describe it there is a little bit how we are used by words, like a, a bit more kind of focused on the person than the actual context. And so what do you mean when you say, you know, the, the meaning of words is kind of based on us or it's in us and it shapes us. How do you see that as a little bit different? Yeah. Or is it different from what I'm. So I think they go hand in hand. I think context is, um, I think context is really important to understand the way that we use language, but I but I think it goes beyond context when we say um, so. So, for instance, the um, when we use the term evangelical, right? It's a very sort of um, loaded term mm -hmm. um, nowadays. Yeah, yeah for sure, right? Especially, but so historically, what an evangelical has been. And what an evangelical is today has shifted over time. And so, mm -hmm. whereas, you know, even perhaps 10 years ago, we would have used Bebbington's quadrilateral to sort of describe this kind of um, uh, uh, um, context, if you will, this space by which a definition is formed. And, right. and if you believe these, you know, four things, then 
um, then you identify, you know, it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter, right. you know, you are an evangelical. Um, but what we're finding today, if, if we're to believe the Pew research and the Barna research that that's being released, um, uh, evangelicals lack um, biblical literacy, uh, mm-hmm. which would take the biblicism of the quadrilateral uh, and diminish it. <laughs> um, right. right. Um, it would it would show you that um, people who identify as evangelicals um, attend church less than even uh, some people who identify more with mainline um, religious beliefs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that takes out um, some of the religious definition, uh, again, of that term. And yeah. so when you look at what does it mean for people, it tends to be, I vote Republican, I um, am more conservative. I am perhaps a, a, a supporter of a particular political uh, figure, and and people identify more with the political side of that than I'm so sorry. Um, identify more with the political side of those things than they do the um, the uh, religious. Right. So, so the way we're used by that term, when I say I'm an evangelical, if I if I claim evangelicalism what people hear is a political identity and not a religious identity yeah i'm being i'm being defined by that shift hmm yeah that's really interesting because in some of my own kind of work in terms of faith and pistology and stuff uh you know talk a, a lot about this idea of meaning drift and about how the way that we use words often kind of have this kind of drift away from the context that maybe they were used when they were first kind of put into a religious context. So for my instance, faith, right, means something different today than it even did maybe 50 years ago versus 2000 years ago. And yet we still hold to the same term, but somehow it defines us a little bit differently, right? Right. So I think it's really interesting what you're saying, especially in relation to, yeah, what would be considered an evangelical today look so different than what would be considered an evangelical maybe when I was growing up. And sometimes we have a hard time pairing the two things together, right? Where, and and this is not the direction I was thinking to go at all, but in light of other conversations I've been having for the podcast, right? This idea that sometimes we use this term deconstruction to talk about like what what someone is doing when in reality, maybe they're actually holding to that original context Actually, this is what I thought an evangelical was. This is what I grew up being told it was, and it looks nothing similar what it, you know, to what right. it used to be called. And now I'm stuck in this kind of weird limbo. You say I'm not, but I'm saying I am. And how do we handle that? Well, that's that's one of the things I talked about in the paper this weekend at the conference that both of us were at. Is that the the challenge with particularly up and coming generations? So you and I both work with with college students mm-hmm. and and emerging adults. <laughs> um, and uh, um, the, the challenge is, is it's not that they don't believe in Jesus, right? So so that would, that's the easy way to write off people who talk about deconstruction or who talk about um, drift away yeah. from the, the it, it, it's not even what it was, you know, again, 20 years ago, where perhaps people were walking away from faith because they were enamored by, 
um, you know, sexuality or money or whatever, right? You're not what we're not seeing amongst this generation is a is a desire to say Jesus just isn't for me. It, what we're hearing in in the data is that this this generation who are walking through this sort of deconstructive process, and I, I shouldn't lay it at the feet of college students because people of our generation are also right. experiencing this, but this is what they're telling us. It's, it's not that they don't believe in Jesus anymore. Hmm. It's that they don't believe that we believe in Jesus. Mm, yeah. And, and so what they want is Jesus. They're, they're reading their Bibles. They're, um, they're, they're pouring over scripture and they're seeing Jesus. And they're like, where is this Jesus? Where right. is the Jesus who healed the sick? Where is the Jesus who um, challenged the religious leaders of his day? Where yeah. are the religious, you know, where, where is that Jesus? Because what they see is a, a, a church that's not countercultural. What they see is a church that is trying to, um, is capitulating to the culture, um, again, not in the ways that we were all told was going to happen. Right, right. Dead in this, like, um, we have to own the seven mountains of culture so that we can persuade Jesus to come back. We have to, um, uh, we have to be in positions of power so that we're taken seriously instead of, you know, sort of believing the admonitions of scripture that says we will suffer and we will be persecuted and, right. and, and, and we will be challenged. We're trying to find every which way to not have to experience those things while also ironically claiming that we're experiencing those things. Yeah. And, and, and that's the challenge of, again, the way that we talk about how the church functions that is, that is causing so much dissonance. Yeah. I, I think of from, for a lot of millennials, and this is anecdotal for me in my space, but you know, social justice issues, right? Where's the Jesus of scripture that talks about caring for the the poor and the sick and the needy? And what do we do with the reality that we're told that if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to follow this political party, right? And, and, and this political party says no to these things, right? There's such a disconnect all the time between what we have grown up as here's Jesus and what we're taught in Sunday school and the Jesus that we find kind of being married to things other than that message, right? Mm -hmm. So this may be the big question, and it's way too big, but how do we do it right? Mm -hmm. Like for you, like when you presented this paper to say like, okay, how we communicate really matters, what do you think are the major woes, the major problems with the way that we're communicating, and what what are the ways that we fix these things? So I think, you know, one of the ways that we, I think we have to take a long, hard look, first of all, at what our priorities are as a faith community. Um, we, we, we can't be both prophet and king is the way that I lay it out in the paper. Mm, yeah. And I use the analogy of the, of the Old Testament kings because the people asked for a king. The people wanted a king. And over and over and over again, God says to the people, you don't actually want a king. Right. Because right. Here's what a king's going to do. A king's going to take your sons and put it in the service of the military. The king's going to take your daughters to, to be in his castle. The, the king's going to take your land 
to, to confiscate your crops for his own wealth. The king is going to take your animals so that he can feast on them. This is what's going to happen if you have a king. And we over and over again said, no, no, no. We want to be just like everybody else and have a king. Right. And, and you're not king enough for us, God. We want a king. And so God, in his mercy, gave us what we asked for. Right. right? Because God is good and gracious to us. And even when it's the worst possible thing that could come our way, he, he gives us those desires and every single thing that he told us would happen happens. But what is also God's grace to us that we learn from, from this period of the Old Testament is that God also gave prophets. Hmm. The prophets and the kings were not the same people. And so, so one of the, 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 the things that I argue for is that it's our job as the church of Jesus Christ to be the prophet and not the king. It's our job to stand outside of the, the political and social structures that our culture has established. And instead of saying, we want to be the king, we want to be the king, or we want to have a king, it's our job to be the one who goes to the king and holds him or her uh, to account for um, the, 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 the things that are contrary to the things of God, right? I, I'm thinking about King David and, and, and in his abuse of Bathsheba, right? That, that, it, that it is the prophet who goes to him and says, you are that man, right? And, and holds him right. account for those things. And so again, it's a, David was a man of God. So it doesn't mean that the leaders can't be Christians. It doesn't mean that the leaders right. can't be people of God, but there has to be somebody to hold those leaders to account. And that's what we're missing in our current structure. What, what we've got is we want to, not only do we want to have the king, we want to be the king. We think we should be, um, uh, uh, forming a, 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 a theocracy. <laughs> right, um, right. And and then when somebody calls us to account, we say that they're anti the church or they're anti God or they're anti, but what they really are is is calling the power in. Yeah. I, and it's really, it's really important for, I think for two reasons. I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, but two off the, off the top of my head, right? The first one is the recognition that to some, to some degree, and in some way, and this is kind of this always becomes the rub, at least from my opinion, is that how how do the people of the church, and if we think about it more as the church, right? I think a lot of times we're going to immediately think about this politically, right? Like, oh yeah, okay, I'm supposed to call into account, which usually means I'm going to call into account the opposite party from which I vote for, and I will be the prophet to that, right? Uh, because they're not doing what I like. But if we take that to the church and we say, okay, we are supposed to be prophet and as a community of prophets, right? Us, us together as a group. And we are supposed to actually call, call into account those within our own political or our own religious structures to, to the table and say, this is wrong and you can't do this and, and this shouldn't be done. You know, I think, I think a lot of times people point at that and go, "You can't, you know, almost you can't do that." Even if we're not the selves ourselves the king, you know, the, the pastor becomes the king, or the pastor and the pastor's spouse, or whatever the board of the church, right, becomes the king, and somehow we we shouldn't, right? Which brings to the second point, right? This reality that when we talk about kind of being the prophet to that church or to that kind of religious structure. 
we have to realize that that is so scriptural. That's so biblical to think about the fact that we should do that. I, I was in a conversation about a church that shall not be named because I don't want to derail us, right? Um, and and I'm and and made this claim to the fact that like yes, we can we can we can live in a in a in a world in which we can be a part of that church and call its leaders into account while not discrediting the work that's being done other places that are that is good work. And if the good work that's being done elsewhere rises and falls with the leader, then I'm very concerned that it's not actually godly work. It is it is the work based on, you know, the the a culture, the celebrity of the pastor versus the actual work that's being done. And basically said we should be mad every time our, our leaders fail we should be angry right. we should be angry that that happens we should we should also be sad for those that are hurt but if we aren't willing to actually speak up the, the world is and we and i think maybe we see that right like people outside of our religious organizations are often calling us to account more than we are ourselves which brings maybe my next question how do we do this in terms of those who actually call us to account, right? I mean, we talked briefly about this pastor who used very who used language very much like a certain ex-president that demonized the media, demonized, like basically called out and said, oh, they can't, you know, that's the devil, that's the, you know, using this kind of religious language to say the media is just trying to destroy what God has built. You know, can the media be prophets to us as well? I mean, what do yeah, we do with that? Why not? You, you know, it, there, there. Uh, every institution has its 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 structures that complicate our relationships to them. But if we, as the people of God, cannot hold our leaders to account without um, uh, um, the scapegoating that occurs. Um, so, so, so one of the things we talk about in, in communication study is this idea of a cycle that we call the guilt redemption cycle, where um, we as, as, as people have, a, have an overwhelming sense of guilt that we are imperfect in our communication and our way huh. to purge ourselves of this guilt is to scapegoat somebody else, right? It's, right. it's, not, it's not that I'm failing in my communication. It's not that I'm failing in the way that I'm leading. It's, it's actually this other thing, right? So that's, yeah. that's what you see happening with, with the pastor you're referencing is that it's, it's not that we did anything wrong. It's that there's this media who is yeah. trying to bring us down. And so, so that we, we attempt to purge ourselves of this guilt by blaming somebody else and then, and then seeking redemption um, through that blame. The problem is, is that if we, if we don't actually, um, uh, go through a, another communication process we call mortification, where we <laughs> where we we recognize the 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 challenges that exist within us. That cycle is just going to keep repeating itself, right. and eventually, um, people will stop believing us. Right? You're in the same place again, 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 again. It can't possibly be the media. That or you can't yeah. possibly be this thing or that thing that that keeps getting to be the scapegoat in this particular situation, and 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 I think what's been so fascinating about the recent cycle of both political and religious 
um, language that we have found ourselves in the the last several years is is just how much um, people continue to get away with this guilt redemption cycle, and people are not sort of the fever is not breaking, hmm. um, and the damage then that is done to our credibility, right? So that's 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 ultimately what it comes back to is like again. Our, our children aren't telling us that they don't believe what we say we believe. Right. They don't believe that we believe those things. Right, right. Because we keep, instead of owning our own stuff, instead of owning our own um, complicity in some of these situations, it's always somebody else's fault. So right. while we're not waking up to the challenges of those things, an entire generation is, and we are, we are sacrificing them on the altar of our own um, blind loyalty to people and systems that are um, anti-Christ. Dare I yeah. Say. Yeah. The right use of anti-Christ. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. yeah. So kind of one point and then, and then a question, right? You know, the, the point, I don't think from what you're saying can't be overstated that, you know, it's, it, there is this disconnect between what, what oftentimes the kind of evangelical church at large, especially, you know, to kind of make it contextual, that one that will accept a, a certain president because they want power more than they want, you know, proper morals and ethics, what we should demand of a leader, even if it's not Christian per se, morals and ethics, just good ethics and morals, is causing, you know, that, that division. Right. And I think we do see, you know, this is where that, you know, there was that study that said that, you know, less than 50% for the first time ever in, in America, uh, church attendance. Right. And there's a part of me that goes, I wonder how much that is blurred by the reality of people who still want their, their Christian spirituality but they just can't do it at that church anymore, right? Or they just can't do it with that group anymore. And so they say, no, I don't go to church, but not because I don't find myself as a person of faith, but because whatever that is, that's not what I have learned faith is. So my question for you then, in light of all of that, how do we, to use your, your metaphor there, how do we break the fever? Like how do we as the church begin the process of healing from this very, poor language, this poor communication that we've been using, uh, almost that we've taken from the political realm in so many ways. And how do we break it so we can actually heal from it and move forward? Yeah. So I actually think one of the ways we break it is we, we have to communicate more. Um, you know, our, our, our natural tendency in these situations is to, um, is to break off into our tribal corners um, and, and that can be lots of things, right? So within the church, we can break off into our generational quarters and our generational structures, or we can break off into our denominational structures mm -hmm. or, um, you know, those sorts of things. And, and, and then we, we, we talk past one another, you know, we're just, we're just ships passing in the night. I, I've, I've addressed this with students for years when it comes to some of the more controversial political religious uh, issues in our country. So, so one of the reasons why we don't make headway on the issue of abortion is that we're not actually talking to one another. We talk past. Right. One another. And, and the only way 
we are going to be able to fix that is if we are willing to lay down some of our own um, ideological needs in that conversation. Mm. And, and, and yeah. so, so, so I'll use that as the example. So, so just from, from a data standpoint, we actually know how to solve for abortion, right? We, we know for the most part, why women seek abortions. And right. we know when um, there's access to education, there's access to jobs, there's access to contraception, there's access to healthcare. You know, we, when we know there's access to those things, the abortion rate goes down. Right. But that would require um, uh, conservatives perhaps to embrace perhaps social programs or government policy that would create space for those things, right? Right. That right. would require um, those on the ideological left to acknowledge the harm <laughs> that comes from abortion. Yeah. But it would require us each to lay down some of our ideological um, uh, idols and come to the table in good faith to actually do this thing that we claim we want to do, care about women, save the lives of unborn children, right? We can right. do that. We can do that. So, so I would say the same thing exists within the evangelical community that says we, we have to let go of some of these, these idols. We, we may not have a seat in the Oval Office, right? Like we might, right. we might have to lay down this, the access to the Oval Office in order to be able to open up the lines of communication with our sons and daughters again. And our sons and daughters may have to lay down some of their desire for immediate social change in order. Um, right. But, but, but we, but, but we have to, we, we've got to, um, we've got to back away from the ideological cold war that we've entered in mm, yeah. and, and sit down at the negotiating table and, and say, you know, here's what we're willing to, to give, because at the end of the day, we are actually, um, we actually want the same thing, right? right? Right. We want the same thing. And, and, and that, and that, and, and so how do we do that? Um, but that requires leaders to humble themselves. It requires followers to be willing to, to, to step into, um, more public spaces and, and, and those things cost us, both of those things cost us. And, and, but until we're willing to, to pay those prices, um, you know, we're going to continue to, to, to move further and further into our, our ideological tribes. Right. And, and then, um, and I, I don't even kind of like that, that language, but our, but these ideological spaces by which, um, the only clash we have is in battle instead of in, um, our ability to, to engage and negotiate with one another. Yeah. And, and I think that brings up a really, you know, get your thoughts on this but like that the the use in which somehow we have accepted as the church political culture war uh language right and and i think about how often i get something in the mail that says this party wants to destroy everything that you love they want to destroy america give us money right, right? like right. this you know for, even from churches now right like yeah, this you know, we've got to step up against this because they want to kill everything that you love and they hate Jesus. So give us right. money. Right. Right. Like right. it's almost, it's almost, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's almost as if we've adopted this language yeah. 
as tools to raise money more than we have actually about being authentic and faithful in the mission that we're trying to accomplish. But I think that that's the challenge, right? Like, so let's just say that all of that's true, right? Let, let's just, let's just grant that. Yes, perhaps there are in fact, people out there who want to see the destruction of the church. What does the scripture say about what we are supposed to do right. with those who oppose us? Right. And so, so if the scripture said those who oppose the church of Jesus Christ must be eliminated, taken out, defeated, what have you, great. Then we follow that playbook. But what the scripture says to us, what Jesus says to us is love those people, right? Bless those people do good to them who seek to do harm to you. Like, like, can you imagine if conservative evangelicalism in the United States of America said, um, we are going to, even though we disagree with another political party in our country, instead of talking about how they want to destroy America or how they want to destroy the church or, or why they're so threatened by us, what if we went to their meetings and um, offered to pray? What if yeah. we um, uh, invited the the candidates from the opposing political realm to come and be prayed over in our churches right like like what if we um showed up to candidates rallies and and offered to stuff envelopes on behalf of that person who right we we ideologically oppose like like what would that do it it feels so radical even talking about it and yet you know those those are just the words of Jesus. Love your enemies, right? Do good to them, bless them. You know, to those who seek to do harm. It's, you're you're not saying that they actually don't want to do harm to you, right? Like Jesus is right. acknowledging there are in fact people who want to do harm to you. And I don't necessarily know that I believe that people of political difference actually want to do harm right. to another. Right. But but let's let's grant that and say, okay, then my calling as a follower of Jesus Christ is to do good to you. So, and in doing good to you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to, because it disarms those things. You know, I think in my maybe ecclesiological vision, right. Of like, what would happen if we actually did that? I think for a time, the church would find itself going through one of these, again, things that I don't necessarily believe uh, eschatologically or just kind of like in, in dispensational theology, the great falling away of the church as like a literal thing, I think we would see it. Like, I think we would immediately see how many people actually follow this Jesus because of the words of Jesus and doing what he says and out of love for him versus those who do it as, and I hate calling it, it's not a social club, but just out of this like, this communal kind of thing of like, these people think like me and therefore I'm going to be with them. And there's a benefit for me if I do kind of join this group, right. Mm-hmm. Versus actually listening and following. I just, I don't know. I just, it, somehow I would think our church would shrink dramatically to begin with, but there might be a change or a quote unquote, be Pentecostal about it revival that comes from it later. Right. Oh, I, I absolutely think that, that like, I, and I think that's one of the great prayers that I have for in my own life is Lord, please don't let me miss the next thing that you want to do because I'm too busy looking at the way I think things are supposed to be. Right. right. Because revival never comes 
from the elites like me, right? It, it never right. comes from the ivory tower, the centers of the universe, you know? Right. I mean, and I fully acknowledge that I, I exist in that space. I'm, I am a, I'm an academic. I am a, I am a regular churchgoer. <laughs> I am, right. you know, I'm all of the, 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 the demographics that, um, that should be seeking revival in the church, but that's not where revival comes from. Revival always comes right. from margins. And so imagine, you know, that I just, I, I want to be able to say, Lord, don't let me miss it because I'm not looking in the least places. I'm looking in, yeah. the, in the most places. Um, yeah, I could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> well, and I think it's really necessary, right? Like these are the kind of, you know, in some sense, like the way that often I'm trained to think about it is to think about it purely theologically, right? Like if we could just get this belief and this belief and this belief, and we can get these things kind of finally lined up and we can actually get people to believe these things or engage with this theology, live out this theology, then maybe we can fix things, right? And then on the other side, it you know, not that this is what you do, but you know, this idea of like, if we could just get people to to communicate better, right? right like, right, but, right. but I think to both of our points, it's almost, it's gotta be all of these things together, these kind of processes and statuses to actually say like theology is not going to fix it. Right. A better biblical interpretation is not going to fix it. Right, right? right. A better communication process is not going to fix it. It really is this whole gamut of why we go to a society and talk about things like we did right. this right. past week, because well, it's this again, whole group as a whole thinking about it. But we also know how to do this, right? Because again, <laughs> we do, right? right? Like we have yeah. to confess. We have to confess with our mouths the things that we've gotten wrong, right? Right. We have to repent of those things and and own the the failures. In that, it's not enough to just say, "Okay, yes, I've been involved in this," but but I must actually repent of those things, and then I have to turn. I have to turn from those things. Yeah. And, and it's it's we really love within the church community to talk about those people out there who need to walk through this comp- confession, repentance, um, uh, a turning uh, process. But what we, what we fail to acknowledge is that that is what is required of us. That, yeah. that it's, that that's what's, that's what re- required of us as God's people is to um, turn from our wicked ways and yeah. then God will see us and hear us and, 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 and heal those things that, that, that need to be healed. That if, if only the people of God um, would, would be the ones to lead the way in that regard. I, I think that's where every time another story breaks about a pastor or a, a leadership um, group uh, who have been caught abusing and and um, taking advantage of and 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 being yeah. um, from such a, a a toxic place is that I think <sighs> how do we repent? You know how do right. we? You know, but it but it's 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 the you know the confession is tightly spun and yeah. the the repentance is surface and there's no turning we just um 
Yeah, I, I read a story this morning that it's like, oh, hey, by the way, our leader acknowledged this thing, we've removed them, but now we have a new model that we've put in place and everything's going to be fine. And, but there's been no, there's been no season of yeah. owning our stuff um, and, and truly repenting and then a complete turn. We, we, we haven't given, we, we've been less than a week from the original story and now we have a new model and everything's going to be fine. Right. You know, you know, those sorts of things. And I, there, there's just, it's, it's like, Oh, are persuasion you there? just doesn't work yes yes okay can you hear me hold on i'll hit i'll hit yeah i'll i kind of pause it real quick because we got we definitely kind of blanked out for a second but okay. uh i'm waiting for you to come back a little bit and oh never mind i already hit recording so i'm gonna have to edit either that or okay. i don't edit and congrats okay. everyone you just saw the behind the scenes something happened right um i think that's really i think that's really fascinating because yeah again we it's really hard because we have some really high profile examples that happened in this past. And it's not just one church, but a church and a uh, leading evangelical online magazine website, right? And another church in Canada. And like, we, we have these kind of cycles. And it's, I'm like, you know, we take too much from politics, but maybe one thing we need to take from politics, and this is just way off the cuff here, just to say it is, term limits for leaders like what if we actually had a system that didn't look to put leaders in a space that says you can be the head of a church for 30 plus years and then leave it to your child or you know what i mean like plan how you want it to kind of go versus to say you have a time god's called you here for a time and a place as this but that doesn't mean that that's going to be forever you know we might again this is just way off the cuff and kind of thinking but just kind of going what would it look like if we actually stopped looking at these posts and these places as kingdoms and as actually service to a place and a time and then moving on, letting someone else take up the mantle? Well, and I, I can't remember who it was at this point. I want to say it was Margaret Paloma, sociologist who studies revivals. I, I could be wrong here, but talked about the difference between, again, the priestly and the prophetic class. Yeah. Right? So we, again, we've, we sacrifice the prophetic. We, we sacrifice that speaking truth to power by having created this priestly class of leaders that even if we can remove them, right, even if we can, then we ship them off someplace else to do the same thing that they've done before because we actually haven't held them to account in, in yeah. any space or, or, or time. You know, that's what we're seeing break free um, in the Southern Baptist convention right now, right? It wasn't enough that people were um, found out and removed right. from positions. It's that we hid behind non-disclosure agreements and we hid behind the polity of the organization and we just moved people from church to church. Um, and, 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 and instead of helping them deal with their stuff, rest truly restoring them yeah. to the body of Christ, we just allowed this perpetuation to go on. And, and again, I, I come from the Pentecostal tradition and, and I'll say it to my own people. If you think there's not a Houston Chronicle reporter ready to break the story in our fellowship, the way that that's been broken, um, you know, for the Baptists, that's not me pointing the finger at them. That's me saying we better start cleaning our house. Oh yeah. We better start opening up and, and, but that, that's what it's going to take is, is for us to, 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 
to confess our own stuff right. instead of waiting for, um, you know, for us to be found out. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know how many more have to fall for us to learn that lesson. Or how many, how many times we have to recognize that non-disclosure agreements are literally the most anti-Christ thing possible, right? Well, like, and seriously, like the red flag. It, yeah. It, you are asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement to serve on a committee for your denomination. That should be your first indication that there is something seriously wrong yeah. here, right? You know, yeah. that would be my like, not only am I not signing your NDA, I would like to... <laughs> I, I I want somebody to investigate what's happening. That's just your first clue. Yeah, right. Because it's and and it it's real kind of antithetical to truth setting you free and and things that are done in darkness are going to be brought to light. Like all of these kind of statements within scripture, that do we actually engage? We we talk about things. We don't let things fester in a closet, and we we deal with them. And we move forward with them, right? That's what love actually looks like, Hmm. right? That's what love actually looks like. Like, I don't let my kids get near a hot stove more than one time, right? Like, I'm not going to place their hand on the stove to teach them this. But but part of my job is, is to prevent them from being in that scenario in the first place. And it may not feel very loving in the moment, but it is quite quite reality that it is the most loving thing I can possibly do is to say, don't put your hand near the stove and, and you know, that's going to hurt again. And that's the thing that's going to happen to you. And, and, and it's, but, 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 but we've created again, these kingdoms, these structures that, um, that don't allow for that. And, and, what appears to be accountability is is just you know yes people who, right. who want to stay in the club because it's right. their own access to power and um i mean listen as a leader you know i i oversee three departments i have 12 full-time faculty who work you know with me and and, and technically for me you know in in those sorts of things if I'm unaccountable <laughs> for my actions, um, then I, then that's when I risk those those abuses, right? If it, but but yeah. but it can't just be the people above me holding me accountable. There has to be people who can say things to me um, that might upset me, that might hurt my feelings, that that might. But but that's what I need in order to be able to serve them well. That's actually the loving thing. Right. And and it reminds me of, you know, one of our, again, one of our Pentecostal academics who wasn't the first to make this claim, but really kind of took it forward in our, in our society and through our work. You know, there's this idea of the prophethood of all believers, that it's not just one, it's not just a couple, it's not just the people in power, it's literally all believers are meant to be this prophethood that speaks truth to power wherever that power may lie. And that should be prized first, right. not whatever the power is, right? And and doing so, you know, I would hope that our communication would start to get better. The way that we think about how leaders engage with their people, you know, the way that we think. I mean, I think so much of it flows from this reality of saying there is true accountability from the community, 
not just from an advisory board that might say yes or no about things or not just from, you know, I've, I'm never the most popular person when I say, but I think oftentimes our, um, our evangelical, especially our mega church culture in in the U S and elsewhere looks a lot more Catholic in its, uh, in its structure than anything else. Cause there is a Pope called the head pastor and who is to say, right. That who's to call them to task, right? If there's one thing that truly from, in my opinion, that should set us apart from, from the Catholic church, it is the fact that there is no one person who right. is the Pope. That's right. Right. It's that we all, we all as the community are supposed to be speaking this truth to power, uh, even if it's inside of our own space. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, one of our colleagues this weekend at the conference we were just at said, you know, when talking with young up and coming church leaders or, or those who desire to go into church leadership, you know, they remind them that you're not the CEO of a nonprofit organization who gives a Ted talk every Sunday, right? Like right. That, that's right. actually not your role. Um, your role is chief servant. <laughs> your role yeah. is um, chief prayer. Your role is, you know, chief clean the bathroom, <laughs> you know, your role. Yeah. And, and if you, um, not only in the things that you do, but that, but that your role is um, chief listener when somebody comes to you and, and, and listen, that's hard, you know, but people gripe. I worked in church administration for a number of years and man, Monday morning, like the, these people could find typos faster. Bulletin. <laughs> no, I mean, we'd have four or five people proofread things, but man, right. on Sunday morning could find those things. And as hard as that was, you know, you wanted to be like, don't they have anything better to do than be proofreading the bulletin while we're, you know, sitting in service on Sunday morning that held us accountable to the things that we had been called to do. And, and as, and as painful as that might've been as nitpicky as it felt, it might've been, it was listening to those things that made us better in that work that we did. So imagine we're willing to listen to the criticisms and say, you know, um, I'm concerned about the way in which power is wielded here. I'm concerned about the way, you know, this person was treated from the pulpit. I'm concerned about these. And we took those things seriously. As hard as that might be as a leader to hear, how much better would we become? Because now we're going to see the typo in a a different way than we saw. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for those, we all, we all have this, you know, unfortunate reality in which we are drawn to do things that we should not do, right? Right. Whether we call that sin or original sin or whatever tradition you're from and however you express this reality of kind of anything other than God, how we're drawn to those things. It Such accountability is not to kind of say we're always just wanting to point out what's wrong with people, but also being there for people to recognize we all are drawn to that way. And if we know that there is a support system that's actually there to both call us out when we do wrong, but then also help shepherd us, even as leaders, when we are doing something wrong or away from doing something wrong, how much healthier is that than just kind of waiting for it to sit in the closet and be exposed later? And now we've got to deal with all of the issues that have come from it rather than dealing with it right then, right there, and, and, and moving, moving forward. 
not to not to make light of the issues that are happening, especially with those leaders, but to recognize if we would have taken care of, uh, gosh, I'm trying not to say the names, but if we had taken care of their stuff 10 years ago, we wouldn't be where we are with the damage that's caused from it today. Well, right? and, 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 and not only would fewer or even no people have been hurt by that system, but the person in question would also not have been damaged, right? When I mm, like, yeah. some of the high profile leaders that have sort of been exposed, right? Like that, um, you know, that where, where I think you have been harmed by your own behavior, <laughs> you know, you, this is cost. Yeah, yeah. This is, this right. is, this is cost you. Um, when I think about some of those, you know, situations where, where the person is even passed on, right? Like you, there's no correcting the reputation anymore. So imagine if we had had the yeah. courage to say 20 years ago, this can no longer happen. There would have been 20 years. Yeah. I mean, again, I, you know, hindsight's 2020, but imagine if there had been 20 years to restore one's reputation, one's life in the community, things like that. But now- right. Now that person's gone and it's been left to others to attempt to, to pick up the pieces. And, and, and so I think, you know, we, we cannot wait on these things because it's right. also important that that person is restored to the community is restored to the person of Jesus. Like, uh, you know, and uh, that's not to diminish anything that a survivor um, has gone through or to say we should, you know, but, but the truth of the matter is, is that, Jesus wants to save that offender <laughs> right? just as much as Jesus wants to save the victim. And, and while Jesus is going to tend to the victim first, there, there needs to be restoration if right. possible uh, of that other person. But when we refuse to confront and deal with these things, we're actually denying the, the mm, yeah. opportunity for confession, repentance, and, and, and healing to, yeah. to occur in that situation. Yeah. And I will use one name here just because it's, it is, it's so applicable, but R Ravi Zacharias, right? Like, I mean, I don't know if that's who you were thinking that's about, right. but yeah, you know, the fact that his whole ministry was around his name, right? right. Ravi Zacharias ministries and all this stuff happens. It happened while he was alive. Some of it, we didn't deal with it. And now that he has passed on, that's his legacy. That's his, legacy. his legacy is the massage parlors and his legacy are these text messages in this extramarital affair, right? Like I'm not thinking about when I hear Ravi's name, I'm not thinking about, you know, yeah, he made some mistakes and there was a time and a period of redemption and it took a while and it was a long process. It wasn't a short process, but you know, look at how he turned things around, right? I don't that's think right. that, right? I just no, think, no, oh man, right. that was kind of skeevy, all these things he did. Well, and, and then the burden becomes somebody else's to bear, you know, it's yeah. his to bear, it's his children's to bear. It's, you know, and, and God bless them. I don't necessarily think they're handling it the best either, but I mean, uh, imagine this has been kept from you, right? Yeah. So now you're not just talking about some minister. You're not just talking about the pastor. Now you're also talking about my dad, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and having lost a parent, I mean, I can tell you the grief journey there is, is, is immensely difficult. I can't imagine what an added burden that would be to also have right. to bear the brunt of their sin because it wasn't allowed to come 
to fruition in the way that it's supposed to, right? That, right. You know, he, not that he won't be held accountable for those things, but he never got the opportunity to own his own stuff. And, right. and so there's the burden of sin is now somebody yeah. is, is owning that stuff. Oh, very true. I hope that's a lot for, for people to chew on. Cause that, I mean, it's, it's a tough subject, but as I, I think you had agreed, this is the point of communication studies, right? It's the point yeah, of right. like, right. it's, it's not easy and it shouldn't be easy. If it were easy, we would have already been doing it. So we recognize it's tough, but you know, it's so necessary, I think for health of the church and so necessary for our own health. Um, what a church we could be if we actually learned to speak better, think better, engage better with these processes and be more of what Jesus called us to be. It would be a vastly different world, right? Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Joy. I think this was really like um, eye-opening. I hope for some people who have been both listening to the podcast, but then also seeing some of this stuff come out, like kind of further language to kind of think about how do we handle this? What should we be calling for even as the church how do we empowered as prophets within the church you know maybe next time we'll talk about that too like how do we best do it because that's always the next step right like yeah that's right we could do it really poorly i think that's the part where i think you know there is an ultimate reality and we're not going to truly know that until we meet with jesus face to face and the veil is lifted and we don't see through that glass darkly anymore but in the meantime, we have the ability to construct a reality in, in the now and not yet Yeah, that looks more mm-hmm. like Jesus and looks more like the reality of, of, of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and if, we could, if we could just get our hands around that, um, it would get us closer um, to that ultimate. Yeah. Yes and amen. Joy, um, for anyone who might want to follow along with your work and what you're doing, how can people kind of keep up with, especially this kind of work that you're doing? Sure. Um, So uh, I love a a podcaster named Annie Downs who says she's embarrassingly easy to find. Um, I I am embarrassingly (laughs) easy to find. Um, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Madam Speaker. Um, I'm on Facebook um, at, at Joy Andrick Qualls. Um, you can get my book, uh, God Forgive Us for Being Women, anywhere you buy um, your books. And I have a website, joyqualls.com. Perfect. And yes, people should go get that book. They should. They should go get that book. I, it's, it's, it's my favorite little orange book. I, I don't use <laughs> copies right here, um, but I, I just came back from a speaking, speaking engagement, have some oh, um, nice. on hand. And um, uh, I even have the ability to get them direct to consumer if you'd like to have them signed, things like that. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, that's a topic we talk a lot about on the podcast and still talking a lot about. Uh, hopefully we'll keep that up, but joy. Thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you had a busy, you had a conference, you're going to a conference, all the conferences. So thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. My pleasure, Aaron. It's good to be with you. 